Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Hello and welcome. My name is Erin Axelrod. I'm a partner at Lift Economy. My guest today is Vanessa Rowanhorse. Vanessa Dine is the CEO of Rowanhorse Consulting, an indigenous woman-led think tank that co-designs wealth and power building efforts that invests in thoughtful community-led efforts that put people back in the center. Vanessa is a co-founder of Native Women Lead, a national organization that lifts Indigenous women in business. She sits on the boards of the New Mexico Association of Grantmakers, Native Community Capital, Delta Institute, Zebras Unite, and is an advisor to Angels of Impact Fund, Village Capital's Finance Forward, and the Decolonizing Wealth Indigenous Philanthropy Advisory Group. Welcome, Vanessa, to the show. Hi, Erin. It's really good to be here. Well, could you start by sharing with our listeners a little bit of how you got into the work you're doing today? Absolutely. The work that I've been doing or that we've been doing really wasn't the plan. I'm not going to lie. So I have my for-profit company, One Horse Consulting, and the journey of starting that company is also how I ended up being one of the co-founders of Native Women Lead, which is that my husband and I, we were living in Chicago where I had been for 15 years prior, and I wanted to move back closer to home because we had had our first son. He's our only child, but at the time, I just remember thinking, I can't imagine raising this little kid here. He is half Navajo and half German Irish. Also, as you can imagine, we were living in Chicago pre-child. We had more than enough money, more resources. We didn't care where we lived. We could live in this tiny little two-room apartment. It was fantastic. The moment our son joined us, it sort of hit me the level of responsibility, financial choices that we needed to make, as well as community and cultural deficits. So we decided to move back to the Four Corners area, which is where I grew up from, on the Navajo Nation in Windorock. We picked Albuquerque, New Mexico. And returning here from the time I was doing work in Chicago, I thought I was going to find a like job. I was working at a place called the Delta Institute, which I am now the board, a board member of. It's amazing how life is full circle where I had the privilege and opportunity to dream big. Uh, we did a lot of incredible, and they continue to do incredible work, focus on climate change, really, addressing climate change through a racial justice lens. And I got to do the coolest projects. Is a nonprofit. I learned business development there unknowingly, got to do projects for the entire city of Chicago, built national programs. Upon our return here, Turns out my lack of traditional education degrees really mattered. And so when I was looking for a job, I couldn't find it. Thank God for relationships. I would say about four months in, sleeping on my sister's floor, because that's where we moved from there to my sister's house, living on credit cards and burning through whatever remaining cash we had, I reached into my network and I was like, look, I'm here in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the Southwest. I need a job. What does anyone have out there? And through that relationship, 
someone reached out and said, hey, I have a colleague and a friend who's with Living Cities. Turns out the city of Albuquerque was a Living City city and they're doing a project. They need someone who knows how to work with community, understands some of the basics of environmental issues and planning, and also knows how to build a fund. All things I had actually done in Chicago. I got my first contract with the city of Albuquerque to help build a small business support sort of safety net program, as well as a forgivable loan fund to help the businesses during one of the biggest construction initiatives along Route 66. And the only thing I knew at the time was that I needed to separate my personal business finance. Roan Horse Consulting was born, no intention for it to be here this long, but it was that act of moving from this point of, can I be in charge of my own life to I am in charge of my own life, as well as what does it look like for someone like me to start a company focused on justice, on economics, as well as like recognizing I was needing to close my own wealth gap. That's how I got into this work. It was painful. I made every single possible mistake you can make as an entrepreneur. I also experienced a lot of doors closed on me, a lot of opportunities not available to me. I also experienced what it was like for someone to question the investability of me, my ideas, and what I was bringing. And so that's how I got into this work, kind of like most of my life, falling into things, but also not being afraid to jump into it, and then getting pissed off, which is sort of the cocktail I seem to thrive on these days. I don't know if I answered the question well, but that's pretty much how I got into this work. Amazing. For our listeners, Could you share a little bit of what you've observed in terms of the barriers for Native women leaders in the social enterprise space and in the spaces you work in? Well, I mean, the biggest one is just the lack of historical education by other folks that are non-Native about how the history of this place is. Most of the time I spend educating people on what sovereignty is, nation to nation, but also educating them that Indigenous people aren't historical. We are modern. We live today. We have a very complex history, as you may be seeing some of the information coming about the Indian boarding school era, which is only one generation separate from me. That's one of the biggest challenges, is the never-ending work to not only reclaim our narrative, but to address the invisibilization that has happened to Native Indigenous people. Another piece that adds to to that is America is built on colonization, patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. That means that pre-colonization, women had equal parts of leadership. We were equally revered in our communities. But through that history of how I'm here today, women, all women, actually have been pushed out of the circle. And then for us as Indigenous women, we have not only been pushed out of the circle, but our own communities have pushed us out of the circle. And so trying to be in business, building business that's in the social enterprise or social impact sector, we are far and in between. And more than often, we are lumped in other. And then the last one, as women, we have to work through our own traumas to even feel like we can be in these spaces. And I'll be honest, it's not easy. 
you know, it's not easy to constantly have to represent 574 federally recognized tribes. I am a Dinap woman. I understand my Dinap people. I am not Apache. I am not any of the other tribes. How can I represent those folks? But yet that's the moniker we have. So I think for me, coming at it from a place of plurality and recognizing that there are multiple worldviews, not just one Western worldview, has really been the approach for my own sanity, (laughs) is to constantly remind people that all of our communities had culture and relationships to their lands, and that all of us in our histories, people had a place in society. What we're living with today with isolation, perfectionism, with pulling everything up from your bootstraps, that's a story sold to us by people who have a lot of power. So they continue to perpetuate this belief that we are not powerful enough to do this when really you do this together. We were never like individual people. That's not how society or people thrive. So those are just some of the, they're not some, they are like some of the biggest challenges that I face today, even after being in this position for how long I've been in. It's still hard out there. I'm still going to meetings and panels and in spaces where I am definitely the only Indigenous woman. I hope in 10 years it doesn't look like this, though. That's the work of Native Women Lead. Thank you so much for the awareness raising around collective consciousness. I'm curious if you could share a little bit about what was your experience in that first consulting gig about building an accelerator, building a program for supporting entrepreneurship? What did you learn? Well, I think what I learned... And I think I've always, we we all know this in different ways from the work, but it was that there are a lot of resources available. However, we have created resources for business and entrepreneurship and access, just like we've done with education, just like we've done with the financial system. They live in institutions, institutions not often in the communities that need the most resources and support. They're also designed to have gates with gatekeeping, trying to build in a program that really centered the businesses, that really put the entrepreneur at the center, was really difficult when you had partner organizations who their primary requirement is you have to walk, literally physically walk through their doors. They weren't coming to physically meet you where you were. Now, imagine if you're a mom and pop shop and it's really just you and your partner running this company. The only time they're open is between eight and five. And the only time they're going to offer this class is when you are at the busiest. How are we actually solving it when the organization and the institution has the most resources, but they refuse to like come to the people how they need it, where they need it? That was one. The other one that was really, that has been something that's been my whole life story, which is Most of us respond well when we can have shared stories, shared lived experiences. And it's very difficult to learn something new in an environment and through a story that isn't yours. I went to boarding school. I've lived in multiple places. But where I have thrived and learned the most from someone is someone who is willing to come to me with a story that I understand because that's my story too. 
as well as willing to recognize that maybe why I'm starting a company isn't why you're starting a company. And that lived experience and cultural relevance, it matters. We don't see that oftentimes. What I was seeing was off-the-shelf programming in which this solution that was created here, well, let's just take it and put it there and it should work. In what world are we all a monolithic community of people? In what world do we all learn the same way, have the same experiences, have the same traumas that we're working through, breaking the cycles of those traumas? This idea that there's only one one way continues to go to my comments earlier about plurality. We are stronger when we can recognize that everyone needs to have access to resources and tools that fits them. We are better in problem solving and solution building and successful, like linking arms with one another, when we can approach the problem in many, many ways and allow people agency to pick a path. So between like hoarding power in institutional spaces to ignoring the fact that Folks need resources and tools that connect to them from the heart to the mind were some of the biggest like learnings, but also confirmation for things I was going through as a new business owner. And again, those things and watching those businesses sometimes struggle, sometimes thrive, sometimes just never come back because it was just too painful for them. I think those all kind of helped me realize that if we as Indigenous women didn't come together to create something for ourselves, not for anyone else, but just for us, we weren't going to be able to lift the brilliance and the opportunity of what is possible. I have to make this plug. And I am proud to say (laughs) we started Native Women Lead in the summer of 2017. And today, Melinda Gates, Mackenzie Scott, and Stacey Schusterman We are one of the four awardees of the Equality Can't Wait Challenge for $10 million to build this workout. Wow, that is so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) How does that make you feel? I mean, I'm just glad I don't have to keep it a secret anymore. My God, I talk so much. You like just getting me to not just shout it out to the world when we found out was like nearly impossible. But honestly, how does that make me feel? You know, I talked about invisibility. We feel seen. We also feel like we can actually turn back to the folks that we've been building this with our community and help them be seen. It's wonderful. And this is a huge opportunity. But I will say it is just a drop in the bucket. This is just the beginning. And there's so many more points in our story and our children's future story that's yet to be told that's ready to be invested in. And I think that's for all people. But I will tell you today, because today was the announcement, you know, I feel full. I feel full. And I don't get to say that often. I feel like satisfied. It's something I, I just I wish I had better language for it. Well, congratulations. And today is a day for all of us to celebrate women indigenous leadership and that being more and more resourced. Of course, we've got a long way to go. You mentioned storytelling. Do your Diné cultural values inform the work you do? And if so, would you be willing to share how? 
I can try. But yes, so I think all of our cultures and our language inform a way in which you just think unconsciously and consciously. As Indigenous people and as Dinep people, it's all connected. And I don't mean to to repeat the same story, but that, you know, there is no end to this storyline, right? It's continuing and it's like cyclical, but forward moving process. And something my father has always said to us is that we as Dinep people, the creator made us perfect. There is nothing wrong with when you are born, you are born perfect. The world tells you how imperfect you are. And so you spend your whole life trying to find balance. And so you wake up every day in your prayers and you're going to mess up. You're going to make bad choices. You're going to do things you're going to regret. But the creator knew that. And that's why we get to wake up every day (laughs) and set our intentions again. And then you fail. You get to wake up the next day and try. But the reason is because this doesn't end, that the story continues. And also in our perfection, it's you working against what is just the truth around us. And so when I think about our work and I think about what we do, we bring this sort of mentality, this way of thinking into our work. And it comes out in ways that can be hard to articulate, but it comes out in the way that like we approach our problems, which is we don't approach a problem with the problem. We approach it with a question. What do you know? What do you see? And how do you feel? Because it changes all the time. But what's most important is what you say to those answers. And in that is where we begin the work. And so I've seen us do this, whether it's in developing a character-based lending program with the local credit union, where I'm proud to say we've lent over a million dollars in microloans using no traditional five C's of credit with 10 partners on the ground to what would have been unbanked, underbanked borrowers who would have never been able to walk into a traditional place to get a microloan. Over 200 borrowers, over a million, and even through the pandemic, we're less than 2% default. Because we approach the question of capital, capital equity, access and pathways, not with what's your biggest barrier, but where is your relationships? Who knows you? What do you know? (laughs) I know I trust that partner organization because I've been working with them for X number of years because they help me with childcare. Great. So you have a relationship with that organization. What do you see? I see that they are on the ground doing blah, 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 or the partner organization says, we see the brilliance of our network. Yes, they're undocumented. Yes, they're immigrants. Yes, they're indigenous entrepreneurs. But we know they're building something for themselves. We know that they're trustworthy, whatever that means. But we also know that they feel connected to us. There's an accountability there. And then how do you feel? I feel this is an injustice. This is an economic injustice. I feel economically denied access to capital. So what do we do? And I'm just proud to say that our local credit union here, it's the first kind of relationship I've ever had with a financial institution that truly was willing to shift capital, shift power, to use Rodney's words from Common Future, because they leverage their infrastructure 
to support partners who were working with people to move resources. But that's how we approach it. So I know it's hard to explain, and I try to try to create a thread to that, but that's just some of my Danak ways informing how I think about the work we do. It's truly remarkable, and congrats on deploying a million dollars. I know our listeners are probably wondering, how can we unleash more capital to support Indigenous entrepreneurs? Well, I mean, I guess the question is who's on the ground doing it already? Where are the Native-led, Indigenous-led organizations that are going to be there whether there's money or not there? Like they're there institutionally invested in that place, in that community, in that network. Who are they? Do you know who they are? And if that's you and your organization's idea of what success looks like, what's value, what are your values, when we talk about money and finance and moving dollars to our communities, capital is only one real small piece of it. We're realizing that so much of this is actually about rebuilding a relationship with money, with economy, and also with the financial institution. The book that Edgar Villanueva wrote, Decolonizing Wealth, he names it. He names that we have to be on a healing journey, but the only way to be healing around that journey is we need to be in more positions of decision-making as Indigenous people, but also that when we talk about money, we have to understand, again, there's a plurality of why money is important, and also the definition of wealth. Wealth isn't just some cash in your pocket. Wealth is access to your land, access to your language, access to your ceremonies. It's the ability to take your kids to a good school, to have good food choices. And so for me, when I think about my Indigenous-led organizations out there, I just say, be unapologetically Indigenous. Name your values. Name what you think is your risk tolerance. And you underwrite what your community needs first. And then go back and see where we can find the capital and resources. We're in a strange moment in time. The last thing I'll say is it's time for us to start looking at creative models of capital. And some of that for me is about education to our own community that you can be cared for in the lending process. It doesn't have to be extractive and scary. And also when we talk about the return on the investment, I would like to hope that there's investors and funders out there that are willing to take on the primary risk instead of putting the risk on those who have the least. I wish I could provide more. For me, this whole journey of moving capital or even getting into this, because I'm not a financial person, like I'm learning this as I go. I will just be completely honest about that. I am constantly in learning mode. But how I did this is that I found Mission Align financial institutions and partners that were willing to have this conversation. And you probably know who they are. Ask them. And then from that point, start asking yourself in your community, if we were to provide capital, what would you need? What would it look like? So it's really finding the network, knowing what your network wants, finding the right partners that are willing to share some power. And, you know, again, whatever your risk is, just be ready for it because it is scary. But like what's scarier to me is not trying something different. I think we'll probably make a ton more mistakes going forward. I'd rather make a bunch more mistakes than not try. I'm totally with you there. The white men in leadership track record has not wholly worked. So so let's try something different. 
So speaking of shifting capital, and you mentioned another fellow, Edgar Villanueva, you're in this fellowship program, right? This Boston Impact Initiative where you recently, can you share a little bit about that? Just just the brief yes, snippet? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so my, my colleague, my sister, my co-conspirator, Jamie Gloshe and I, we joined the Boston Impact Initiative last year. It was supposed to start right before the pandemic. We were going to have all these in-person meetings, but we came together because we wanted to see, we have a dream. Our dream is to create the first ever Indigenous Women's Investment Fund. And it really kind of came out of when we were at SOCAP, the conference, and we were talking to people. We were just there to get ideas, to learn. I will be honest, though, Jamie, my colleague, she's actually been a lender. She supported an organization called Axion at the time here in the Southwest to basically develop and design out their native lending program. So she saw it at the front lines, what people were experiencing, how the products were being written. And so together at SOCAP, we were just meeting and talking to people and getting a sense on like, what is impact investing? Is it possible to be a good impact investor? How does this work? We also had this idea of like, what would it look like if we actually had our own fund and we were in charge of that fund and could make decisions on who got invested in? This was in 2018, and I will be completely honest, it seemed so far-fetched. We met someone who said to us, because I think they're just used to pitching. Everyone's always pitching there. And I don't think he realized the way he said it and how it sounded to us. But his question to Jamie and I was, well, why should I care about investing in Indigenous women? Two, two Indigenous women trying to understand how investment works and it blew our minds. I mean, it was so painful. Like, it really hurt our hearts. But I will tell you what motivated us. Gratefully, along SOCAP, we also were at COCAP, which is another conference that happens at that time, where we found we got to be in community with folks like Namaka Agobo, Deborah Freeze, Boston Impact Initiative, Lauren Groton from Mission Finance, like we were suddenly also in this other sort of more, I think, practitioner community that felt more aligned with us. And that's where we first learned about it. And I think we had shared with Deborah and a few other people, we were like, we don't know a lot about this, but we're really interested. And we do believe we have something. And that's how the journey started. Our dream is to launch a $10 million investment fund, which we now call the Matriarch Revolutionary Fund. We are almost done with the fellowship. And in that fellowship, we've been connected to some of the most brilliant people across the United States, building some of the coolest funds out there. That community has really lifted us. And during the time of the pandemic, where we thought we were going to be together, the pandemic happened. George Floyd was murdered. And I will tell you, it was hard to show up for a lot of things. But that group people were real and vulnerable. And I will say they inspired us to keep showing up and we hope we inspired them to continue to show up. But it wasn't easy to try to build a fund in a vacuum and on virtual. I am proud to say we're close to finally figuring out what this whole thing will look like. And we hope sometime in the spring of 2022 that we'll be able to be in a position to really get this thing kicked off. But that's been one of the most powerful things between the group and the folks that they've assembled, the co-learning we've had, and that continual community of people who've just shown up. There are some incredible leaders and organizations convening people. And I would be remiss to not mention 
because I'm one of the founding members and I sit on the board of Zebras Unite, that is another group that has worked so hard to have this discussion on like, what could capital really look like? How are we building the infrastructure? And why does it matter that it has to be built by us? I'm noticing an amazing pattern, Vanessa, this pattern of collectivism, of cooperation, of working in networks and communities. And as we come to a close of our conversation, I really want to focus on you and your world. How do our listeners support you and your leadership? What can we do? What do you need right now to grow the work you're doing? I think for me, what I need and what I would love to see more of for this work to grow is for us to create stronger pathways for other Indigenous people and women, young women coming into this field, to get access to fellowships, to be offered apprenticeships, to be sitting on boards, to be able to like get into management positions. It's challenging when I meet people and they're like, yeah, I just, you know, I don't know any Native people. I don't know, you know, that I've become the one Native person they know when I'm like, there are many of us out there. You got to do some work. So if there's anything I could ask the community and the network is do some research, reach out to other Native-led organizations and Native leaders. They are there. They're in your community. See what's possible. And honestly, if you're going to offer opportunities for Indigenous people, be intentional. Do your research. Don't let them carry the labor and the education. But also, show them what's possible. There's so much to co-learn together. And I feel like that's been the most exciting is, is locking arms with so many community leaders, so many cultures, and realizing how much we have in common, but also how much we can learn from one another. So I just want to see more, more people doing the good work. And I want to see more Indigenous ways of thinking and knowing, leading and imbuing what a next economy could look like, what a regenerative or circular economy is, because that's what Indigenous people have. We had that before colonization, and we're still building it today. If the Earth's remaining biodiversity is on 80% of that is on Indigenous lands, we're doing something right. Trust us. Amazing. Vanessa, thank you so much for, for giving us those words of wisdom, for your time today, for all the work you do towards creating, recreating that economy that was lost. What would you say for last words to our listeners? Oh, my God. Take care of yourself. Go outside. Enjoy a popsicle. I mean, this work is long and it's hard. And I've been talking to so many of my colleagues and friends and folks I admire. And we're not going to solve anything today. So, like, give yourself breaks. And I'm almost speaking to myself. But it's like, take care of yourself, you know? Like, we need you, but not at the expense of you. There you have it. Vanessa Rowan-Horace, thank you for joining us on Next Economy Now. Thank you, Erin. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.